0: is in the book of Jonah. And so we're in week four of five of that. And so if you're just joining us, this is new to you, or uh, you missed a week, you've been out on vacation. May is one of those months where we tend to miss things. There are ways for you to get caught up. And one of those uh, is a podcast. We put this out on the internet every single week. And so whether it's on the Covenant uh, site, you can go and listen to past sermons and catch up. You can go on iTunes. You can subscribe there. It's on Google. It's on anything. Anywhere you find a podcast, you can find uh, Covenant Church sermons so that you can always be up to date. The second thing we're doing all month is we have a devotional that we're walking through uh, one step at a time, one day at a time. So this is available on Amazon, but you do not need to pay for it because odds are you are on Facebook already, and we will put it on Facebook and Twitter on the Covenant uh, Facebook and Twitter sites every single weekday morning and Saturday morning at 6 a.m. And so if you are on those and you have not followed or liked them, that is your access to this for free. Um, And so we want you to be able to follow along on that journey. So that's where we are. And now we are in week number four. Week number four takes us into chapter three of Jonah. Chapter three of Jonah. So we've seen this running prophet running from God. We've seen God send a storm in order to redirect Jonah. We've seen Jonah swallowed by the great fish. And then uh, where we left off, he was spit out. He prays this prayer, he seems to find humility, He spit out uh, onto the beach to go and do what he was called to do in the first place. And so what we 'll see today is we 're going to kind of unpack and uncover this uh, concept that you and I often live with inward hearts, with inward hearts. And then as we figure out what does it mean to live with outward focused hearts, we 'll also walk through and see how uh, the people of Nineveh find true repentance, what that might mean for our life, and then ultimately. How does mercy triumph over judgment? How does that work? So Jonah chapter three, verse one. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Remember the first time it said go. He's going to repeat himself. He says in verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, right? We've talked about this. This is an enormous place, a center of commerce three days journey in breath, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so we're continuing this story, and what we see is this second call to Jonah. And Jonah is this somewhat unwilling prophet, right? Jonah has tried to avoid this call already. God sort of redirected him. God got his attention, drops him off on this beach and says, okay, now seriously do this. And so our unwilling prophet Jonah then goes and preaches to the city. He preaches and proclaims their destruction, what God told them to say. And what we see about Jonah, what the first thing I want, to, I want to recognize in this passage is this concept of an inward heart. The question I think I would ask is, does Jonah want these people to be saved? Jonah was told early, hey, go to the Ninevites and, and preach to them that they're going to be destroyed. Obviously, the, the intention there is maybe, maybe we'll find a way out of this for them. Jonah, his self-righteousness, we learned, turns and runs. He goes the other direction. Why should I save them? Why should I help with them? Ninevites, they're known to be brutish and violent, unjust. I don't want any part of being uh, their salvation. So we see that in Jonah's pride and his self-righteousness. He seems to want nothing to do with them. We, we've already said next week, chapter four, we're going to see him tell God, I told you so. I knew you would save them. You didn't even need me to do this. Why, why would we want to be a part of this? He's a reluctant minister. I have a friend that uh, would, would use the term pulling up the ladder to refer to this. The idea is, is if you were uh, cast overboard, if you know, your ship was sinking and there was a lifeboat and there was a ladder into the, the water, and you're the first one to reach that ladder, you get up on the lifeboat, and, and he would say, our tendency, naturally human tendency, our tendency is to pull the ladder up behind us. There's this thing in us that kind of wants to be on this island of exclusivity, that kind of wants to feel superior, that kind of wants to have a position that someone else doesn't have. We, we reach a level, and then we're kind of naturally inclined to want to occupy that level by ourselves. Because what's so special about getting to this level if everybody's on that level. And so the the natural pull is to to pull that ladder up behind you so no one else can get in the boat. It's a protective thing. It's a selfish thing, but it happens in all spheres. It happens in business. Two guys start in the same field. They start at the same level and one gets a promotion earlier. One gets a a big job shift earlier, a big raise earlier. His buddy says, hey, can you, you know, what did you do? Who do you know? Can you help me? And all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, you'll find your way. In children, this is uh, particularly obvious. Older children, the older siblings are in the room. You're adults now, but here you are. We have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, right? And so when the eight-year-old gets to stay up late at some sort of special night, she will almost always angle to quietly communicate to us that, you know, Brixton probably needs to go to bed, right? I mean, 9 15 is pretty late for her mom. So she should, she should probably go to bed, right? Well, she's pulling up the ladder. We just said, Hey, we're going to stay up late. We're going to watch a movie. We're going to have popcorn. We're going to have fun. And she goes, that sounds great. Um, Can we do it absent her? Because it would be way more special if it was just me. We do it in faith. We don't like to admit we do it in faith, but we do it in faith. There, there are people that we would rather not associate with. There are people that are on the uh, wrong side of the faith equation, and we say, you know what? It's just I-, I could go and reach out to that person, but they're just, you know, they got their own thing, and it, it's we'll just stay here, we'll stay safe in this bubble, and, and leave them there. It's pulling up the ladder. It's it's more subtle than than we like to to see because it's, it's hard to recognize those subtle things in our life, but it, it feels good to have a place of exclusivity. It feels good to have a place where we feel like maybe we did something right and maybe we've earned something greater. The reality is new people make life messy. When we talk about the faith uh, uh, conceptualization of that, new people make life messy. We have these community groups. And, and the idea of community group is to gather together, to share life together, and then to turn around and bless the community. It's gather, it's share, it's bless. It's this rhythm of life that we're aiming for. I will say that the previous church we were at had a similar concept of community groups. And what was interesting, being on a staff at a church, is you get kind of the behind the scenes look at, at what makes the group up and what do the group want. And, and we had this designation. The groups could either be open, we're accepting new people, or closed. I, we're, we're okay for now. And I would say at any given time, 95% of the groups at our previous church were closed. Why? New people are messy. We already know each other's stories. We finally found a rhythm. We're friends now. This person's in the group and now we can relate to them. And, you know, these other people might have more kids or they might have more problems or gosh, we're, that's just messy. And so the natural inclination is close. We're, we're in this. We got our bubble. We're safe here. And, and nobody else needs to join because that would really throw off the pH of the group. What we're saying is, hey, hey, the boat's full and we pull the ladder up behind us. But there's a reason we don't have home groups. We have community groups. That's not accidental. It's not because we already used home groups in this church, although we have already used home groups. Home groups would... Would imply that the ministry is to the home. A community group implies the ministry is to the community. These are designed to affect change, substantial change, due to the grace of Jesus working in us and through us upon the community. And as we affect that change, as we focus there, will we be blessed? Yes. Will we be grown? Yes. Will we be challenged? Yes. Will we come together in greater fellowship and beauty? Yes. They're community groups, they're here to bless community because the mission field is not our kitchens and our living rooms it's not our basements and our our backyards that's not the mission field we've been called to the community to the neighborhoods in this region to uh, folks that are far from the lord to folks who are hurting to those that are vulnerable to our partners in ministry we're called to turn around and bless the war between darkness and light is not found around uh, your kitchen island it's not found on facebook these are the safe places to be, but it's not where uh, the real battle takes place. Because our culture has convinced us that the most important person on earth is self. That's just what culture says. And it's, it's hard to deny it because I'm the only person I am, right? So I wish I could make someone else more important than me for longer than five minutes, but gosh, that's hard. Because I'm hungry or I'm tired Or I had an emotional day. Or I have this problem. Or i It's hard for me to put others first. And culture is going to continue to tell me, yes, you are important. Yes, you are first. Yes, you are the best. And yet that's not true according to the God of the Bible. Jonah has an inward-facing heart. He doesn't want to go and address the people of Nineveh. He has his own stuff he wants to work on. Jonah loves God. That much is clear. Jonah is the prophet of the Lord. Jonah loves God but not necessarily the people that God loves. And we have to ask ourselves, is that us? Are we people that love God, but not necessarily the people God loves because they're messy? Because they have problems? Because they are us? One of the steepest climbs of the faith journey is not moving from unsaved to saved, but from inward-focused to outward-focused. One of the steepest climbs of the faith journey is not moving from unsaved to saved. God does that work. But from inward focused to outward focused. You have somebody who's sick in your house. What do you do? Whether they're they're sick in bed or they're in the hospital, what you do is you just drop resources on them like nobody's business. Rest don't move. We'll take care of that for you. Here's more food. We're going to pump you full of liquids. We're going to give you medicine. We're going to, it just, we're just assaulting the ill person with care and consumables. You need your energy. You need your strength. Here, have more soup, have another Gatorade, take another nap. It's a great idea. Why? Because an ill person, that's the way back to health is to drive resources into them. What happens when that person gets healthy? When your child is no longer bedridden, when your, your mother is no longer uh, stuck in the hospital, when someone gets out, what if you kept the same strategy and you just pumped resources into the now healthy person? And you said, don't do any work, take another nap, have another steak, have another piece of pie, here's some more Gatorade, take another nap. What would happen? You would go from uh, ill to healthy to obese and really ill again, right? Because it's not the same strategy. Getting someone from ill to healthy, from sick to healthy, is not the same strategy as keeping them healthy. So you pump full of resources so that when they get well, those resources can then be realigned and resent somewhere else. This is the faith journey that a church, a community takes on, is we say, we put all of our resources into getting, to getting sick people well, Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. We put our lives into getting sick people well, into getting hurting people healed. So that when they are then healed, when they are whole, they turn and they then begin to do the same for others. But, but what our cultural conception does is it says, no, 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 it's just about me. And so just keep giving me more resources, keep pumping more into me, keep giving me more to do and more to study and more to, and and so what we end up being is this kind of, we become obese Christians where we just keep taking. And this is Jonah. Jonah's got an inward heart that isn't worried about those outside of him, he's worried about him. Second thing we see is true repentance. In verse five, the text said, the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. And this radical shift happens. And so from the king all the way down to the livestock in the field, they turn. They cover themselves in sackcloth, like burlap. That's itchy. Ever think about that? They sit in ash. What they do is they take the most humble position possible. They get a posture of total humiliation before God. As if to say, this is all we got. You're right. It's an incredible radical turn. It's as if I walked into New York City and I said, hey, this place is kind of dark and there's a lot of sin and a lot of injustice and a lot of people being oppressed. And it's time for the city of New York to turn. And the people of the richest city in our country, the richest city in our region, if they climbed down from the skyscrapers and sat in the streets in burlap, n- no one expects that. It would be ridiculous. Tourists in Times Square, they'd be doing different things. You know, hey, look at that guy. He looks like a banker wearing burlap. Must be the new thing, right? It would be a whole fashion week would be changed. Wasn't that funny. It's radical repentance. What the king says is everyone turn from your violence. Turn from your evil. Turn. We got to get on the other side of this. And I've told you, the region of Assyria, this, this region of Nineveh, was known for its incredible violence, was known for its systemic injustice, it was known for these things. It was a place of persecution. And in a moment, upon hearing the, the, the word of the Lord come to them, they turn. It's one of the most remarkable turns of events in the Bible. It's one of the quickest turns in the Bible. They repent. What's interesting to me is their expectations. You can make people do just about anything for a time, right? Right? Everybody gets this idea. You, you could do just about, get somebody to do just about anything. If the reward is right and it's urgent enough, you can get anyone to do almost anything. People will do crazy things. There are people in this room that are on a crazy diet and exercise uh, regimen right now because, like, like, beach season is coming. And there are people that are like, oh, I'm not eating any of that anymore. I'm off carbs entirely, and I'm only eating this, that, and the other, and I'm working out this many times a day. Why? Well, because we got this vacation coming up to the beach, and, you know, it's beach body time so people put themselves through tremendous torture to have a beach body some of us were just blessed with incredible physiques and we don't have to worry about that not as much everyday's beach body in my house um, people show incredible financial restraint when you're saving up for some big purchase you're saving up for a big vacation you're saving up for a big purchase you're going to buy a new house you want to you got this thing you can show incredible financial restraint we're only eating sandwiches for a whole month. We're gonna, we're only doing this, we're running the air at, you know, the heat at 50 and the, the AC at 90, we're just we're gonna suffer. It's fine. We're if we we'll save enough money, we can do this and it's worth it. The sloppiest kid in the room will, will keep the cleanest room you can imagine if the promise is a clean room for 10 more days gets them the video game they've been waiting for. The, the certain reward will get people to behave a certain way. Look at the Ninevites. Look at their response to God saying, "Hey, look, this is, this is the end for you. you guys are you're in trouble." The response was, "Who knows maybe we won't die?" is basically what they say. Not, God doesn't say, "Look, if you do this, I will uh, give you great wealth, I will give you great power, I will give you great glory. God just goes, "This is not going to keep happening, and you're, you're going to be destroyed." And their response is not we can do this because there's some great reward at the end of the rainbow, their response is, who knows, maybe we won't die if we humble ourselves. Like, they're not expecting great wealth and great blessing. They're expecting maybe to be allowed to live in their sackcloth and ashes. Part of the beauty of true repentance is that it's not tied to a promised reward. Part of the beauty of true repentance is that it's not tied to a promised reward. There's two types of apologies that you get. Parents know this. There's two types of apologies. And one, one of them in my house is called the sorry, 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 which is when someone gets caught and doesn't want to get in trouble. And so what do they say? Sorry, 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 sorry. And then you go, well, that's not really, that's, that, that doesn't really count. Okay. I haven't had a chance to punish you yet. You know, you can't, you can't just undo the sorries. And then if you don't accept the sorry, the sorry gets louder and more shrill. Until you're like, okay, now you're in trouble for the sorries and that thing you did. There's the sorry, sorry, sorry. And then there's the quiet, hey, mom, hey, dad. That thing I did, I'm I'm sorry. Like, I I get it. I shouldn't have done that. I I understand how that was hurt somebody. or I understand how that was, uh, I'm sorry. One is to avoid, right? One is to avoid punishment or avoid sorry 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 and there's another one that is actually repentance there's committing to change because um, we don't want to be punished or because there's great reward and then there's committing to change just because it's the right thing to do jonah's word is you're going to be destroyed and their response was not sorry 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 their response was let's turn from evil and violence and who knows maybe maybe we won't die But we're not doing it so that we're spared. We're doing it because we've been outed. As an aside, two things God doesn't allow in response to injustice or in response to violence. This is more personal than than textual. But you look through the whole of Scripture and you see two things. Um, One, God does not allow injustice to be the response to injustice. Never repay anyone for evil for evil. You've heard that. So dealing with a wrongdoer wrongly is not a a God-honored way to respond to injustice. The other that he won't accept is resignation, the kind of sweeping under the rug avoidance of of something. Well, we saw that. It's a reality. Let's move on. There's no restoration there. There's no healing there. Neither of those, uh, whether more violence, more injustice, or resignation, neither of those things drive us to greater justice. And so neither of those things are, are sort of valid responses to evil in our world. One escalates injustice by creating a cycle of violence. The other ignores the need for justice and ignores a victim. Repentance in Nineveh is interesting because they know their injustice required punishment, and they turned even if it didn't eliminate the punishment. These are the seeds of a true and a beautiful repentance. It says in verse 10, when God saw this, he relented. When God saw this, he relented. God can change hearts. God is pleased with an outcome. And God relents from his wrath. James 2.13 famously says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. We love that verse. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We cling to that because you and I are people who are in need of mercy so often. The context of that whole passage is magical. We love the mercy part, but look closer. James 2, 8 through 13. Verse 8 says, if you, really, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you'll love your neighbor as yourself, and you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has begun guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law, the whole law. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. What he's saying is be merciful. And he's saying, who wants to fulfill scripture? Who wants to fulfill the law? How do you do that? He says, first, have a heart for others. Be outward focused. Well, how do I fulfill the law? Be outward focused, first and foremost. He says, don't be, don't be inward focused. Be about others. And then don't play favorites. Show partiality. And if we're honest, the, the people we're most partial to is me, myself, and I. That's my first partiality. And then there's second one, there's other people groups that I favor. So he's saying, don't be partial. Drop your prejudices white, black, Christian, Muslim, man, woman, young, old, Democrat, Republican, Protestant, Catholic, whatever, whatever partiality we bring with us into the day. He says, drop that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do kind to your neighbor. Yeah, but which neighbor? The neighbor that looks like me, the neighbor who believes like me, the neighbor who votes like me, the neighbor who thinks like me. No, no, no. Eliminate partiality from your life and then do well by others. That's the beginning of the fulfillment of the law. We're all guilty of the fundamental attribution error. We've talked about it before. You can Google it and read all about it. The fundamental attribution error says that I attribute to you different motives than I attribute to me. So, so let's say uh, my wife and I both get in a car accident with the same, you know, two different parallel universes. In one, she gets in a fender bender. And I'm, you know, I'm glad she's not hurt. But, you know, what were you doing? Were you texting? Were you... What? What, what happened? Uh, my 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 motive towards her is like, well, you know. And then I'm kind of bummed out. And we got to fix the car. And it's a little bit of a hassle. But I'm I, mean, I am glad you're not hurt. And With me, well, this deer ran across the road, and then this other thing happened, and the kids were screaming, and and you know, life is stressful. And I got all these justifications and reasons why you know this accident was unavoidable. And yeah, I'm really glad I'm not hurt as well, by the way. And so, isn't that better? You go. Well, that's not quite it. Or if my eight-year-old doesn't make her bed, what's her problem? She's lazy. If I don't make my bed, I'm busy, right? That's the fundamental attribution here. What we uh, assign to ourselves in terms of intentions is different than what we assign to others. And what this is saying is you've got to eliminate that if you want to fulfill the law. If you want to be about Christ, you have to undo this, this partiality towards my intentions are good. I didn't mean to hurt anybody. And yet, when we're wounded, we go, gosh, wasn't that malicious? And then it says, basically, don't mess up anything, is what the text says. It says no one fulfills the, the law itself. Because even if you keep all of this, there's always that one. And when you, when you transgress even one letter of the law, the whole thing is transgressed. So this is a problem, right? Because we're like, okay, well, you just told us the way to, to fulfill the law is to, is to focus on others first. And now you told us there's no way to fulfill the law. So what do we do? It lays it out. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So even though none of us can keep it, we are all striving to keep it. None of us can do it just perfectly. The scripture says, rest in the triumph of mercy. Operate out of that richness. That God who saw your position found mercy upon you. That God who saw your sin and your falling short yet looked at you and said, worth saving." you likewise walk as one rich in mercy. This is God's delight, that we would hold others as more important than ourselves, that we would be outward-focused individuals, that we would be people so steeped in mercy that our lives would be walking merciful lights. Which leaves us with three questions for today. And question one is, where are you on the journey from being inward-focused to outward-focused? If you did an honest assessment, where are you on the journey from inward-focused to outward-focused? You have to start somewhere. And so if you're like 98% inward focused, that's fine. Like let's commit to being 96 next week and 92 next month. And there are ways to do it, right? There there are strategies to take hold. There are ways to to walk in life in such a way that it, it, it removes us as the center of the universe. I'll do that with you sometimes. I will create ways sometimes to have that done. We had a fam jam light not too long ago. It it rained, otherwise we would have had the full rock wall and food trucks, but we ended up having bouncy houses in the gym with pizza, and it smelled like rubber and feet, but it was a lot of fun. And, And leading up to that, we gave you cards and said, hey, if you have a friend or a neighbor who you would love to invite, here's a way to do it. And the idea, I don't know if you know this, the idea was not that those people would come to church. The idea was that you would meet those people right? That's the strategy. The strategy is not that those people would come. to You are the church, right? You don't come to church. You are the church wherever you go. And so the idea is not that we would like capture more people. The idea is that we, our people, would go out and reach more and build relationship. And so the cards that are on your seats when we say, would you like to invite somebody? That card is not about getting the person in the seat. The the card is about getting you out of it. It's becoming more others focused. Question two, are there areas of your life that you need to repent? This is hard, right? Because you don't have to repent if your intentions were good and you just didn't mean to and it was sort of an accident. So we have to eliminate that attribution error first. Are there areas of of your life where we would recognize that we operate with some level of injustice? And then is there a place that you would be willing to sit before God, sort of in the ashes of your own life, and say, I'm turning from this? Today's a chance to examine your heart and say, what is it that displeases God about my life? Question three, are you living a life of mercy? Are you living a life of mercy? Is your first inclination judgment or is it mercy? Is your first inclination to bad service at the restaurant? She must be having a hard day. Let's see how we can help. Or she must be a bad waitress. Let's see if the manager's here. Is it judgment? Is it mercy? God has overwhelmed us with undeserved mercy. And so the question becomes where can we do the same? Where can we reorient our lives to be merciful beyond explanation so as to be a flaming arrow that points back to the ultimate source of mercy in our lives? So, those are our questions becoming outward focused? Are we on our journey to becoming more outward focused? Two, is there a place in our life we need to repent? And three, are we living a life of mercy over judgment? I want to invite you to stand as we continue to worship today. We're going to continue to sing and continue to uh, praise. We're going to uh, speak the scriptures out in song. And part of how we're going to do that is in communion as well. And so down front there are these two tables, and we